0: Hello and welcome to Right Care at Baptist. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Phil Lammers, a medical oncologist, about the impact of COVID 19 on the field of oncology. Dr. Lammers, thank you for being with us today.
1: Thanks. Happy to be here talking about some important topics.
0: Yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started working with Baptist?
1: Sure. Uh, so I grew up in, in Indiana and uh, ended up doing my medical school there at Indiana University. Uh, went on to internal medicine residency over at uh, Washington, St. Louis. Spent a few years over there and then moved to Nashville and did my hematology and oncology fellowship training there. And following fellowship, uh, stayed, on, stayed in Nashville I was working for about five years as the Division chief for oncology at uh, Meharry Medical College there in Nashville and had been doing some work on some research projects with uh, the the oncology group over here in Baptist and and they ended up recruiting me over here. So we moved over here towards the end of 2018. So I've been with Baptist uh, not quite 2 years. it will be 2 years and and a couple months. But uh, my wife and I and our three little girls moved over here in, uh, in end of twenty eighteen and, and have really enjoyed it so far.
0: We're we're lucky to have you for sure. And do you specialize in in all oncology or do you have a specific area of focus?
1: Yeah, so I'm the uh, the medical director of our research program. Uh, so a couple days a week, uh, I spend my time doing administrative work and research work and help to run our clinical trials program. Uh, across kind of all oncology specialties. Uh, but in terms of my clinical practice, I am uh, generally seeing mostly patients with breast cancer and lung cancer. And I work in our multidisciplinary programs and sort of specialties.
0: So COVID-19 has really disrupted all of medicine, but can you just discuss how it has impacted the, the field of oncology and maybe start with the early days. What sort of things were going on? Did you have to pause treat, treatments um, while we were waiting for things to reopen with the pandemic and how has that affected your practice, especially in those early days of the pandemic?
1: Sure, so yeah, like everybody, you know, our, our lives were pretty disrupted in, in March when the COVID epidemic really hit our area in earnest. You know, in, at the beginning, like everybody else, we were trying to kind of figure out, you know, how the virus spreads, what, what's the best way to keep patients safe. Uh, so over the first month or two, we did end up rescheduling a number of patients who were coming back for kind of routine follow up care. We started doing a lot more telemedicine. Our telemedicine numbers really picked up in terms of video appointments for patients and phone consultations for patients. Um, but really, at, at no point did we stop administering key treatments for patients uh, in terms of chemotherapy, uh, surgeries, radiation therapy. Uh, we, we really try to continue to provide all of those necessary services for patients. However, I will say we we did, you know, think about the virus a lot more. When we were starting to make these treatment decisions. You know, how. How important was it for a patient to start you know, this week versus next week versus the week after in terms of the, the level of the virus outbreak in the community. You know, if we had to think about if a patient were to get the virus, you know, how sick could the patient be considering the different therapies we could offer to patients. So, it's, it's really become a key determining factor in the type of treatment that we offer patients uh, and, you know, the frequency of patients coming back for appointments you know, versus staying at home, those sorts of things. Um, but in terms of, you know, offering, you know, life saving tr- treatments, we really never backed off. On on those sorts of treatments, one of the one of the big areas that was affected early on, of course, was screening for new cancers. Uh, as many of the elective procedures were shut down during the first month or two of the pandemic, uh, you know, we we stopped screening for some of our our cancers at that point, with breast cancer, colorectal cancer, et cetera. And so, you know, we we did, I think. Uh, see a number of, of patients who would have come in normally for those procedures uh, get delayed in terms of some of the cancer diagnoses that were eventually made. Did you see as a result of those delays any any
2: progression of disease or was it just a, was it just a scheduling issue that you feel like you caught up on or, or how, how do you think that delay then affected the care and the outcome of any of these patients during the time period?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's 1 that we're still still working on. So there have been some studies published, just looking at data and doing some mathematics to try to estimate. The effects, especially of delaying screening procedures and what's come out of a lot of that research is that we likely are seeing uh, are going to see patients present over the next year or even longer, depending on how long this outbreak goes on. We'll see patients presenting with later stages of diseases uh, because patients are not getting those screening tests as they were prior. Yeah, I think we found the first couple months everyone was very hesitant to come out to physician offices. After things kind of opened back up, there's kind of been Almost two populations of, of patients out there. There's one population who wanted to come in right away. Who was very scared about putting off some of these, you know, regular routine procedures, and including seeing their primary care doctor for regular checkup. But then I think there's still another population who is just still very frightened by the virus and by the situation, and has been more hesitant to come in, even despite having symptoms. I think that's been borne out in some of the cardiology data by patients, you know, by, by seeing the number of myocardial infarctions have gone down across the country. I think we're seeing the same thing in, in cancer care and that patients, there's, there's a population of patients anyway who are just frightened to potentially come into contact with the medical system. And so a lot of the work we're doing now <clears throat> is to try to re-engage that patient population you know given that we've made extraordinary steps i think to make our our healthcare systems as as safe as possible so that we don't face you know the the prospect of of having patients come in down the road with potentially later stage cancers or cancers that are more advanced and potentially unable to be cured when if caught earlier they could potentially be handled uh, in a curative fashion
2: so you you bring up a really good point. You're speaking now to perhaps the the, the screening vulnerabilities imposed by COVID. Uh, are there any other specific vulnerabilities to the to the oncologic patient that has been imposed by COVID? For example, uh, any any types of treatment alterations you've had to make, or the hypercoagulability situations that are that are also to oncologic patients, but also to COVID-19 patients. Are there any specific adjustments that you had to make to the the patient uh, with cancer?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So we are uh, a part of a consortium that's trying to evaluate uh, the effects of COVID outbreak on cancer patients in general. Um, It's called the CCC19 Consortium. Uh, It's composed of, I think, almost 100 different practices now, both in our country and abroad, and has published uh, several important papers now uh, on a cohort of cancer patients and the overall effect of COVID infection on those patients. And what we really found is that the the cancer patients in general are more vulnerable to the infection than non-cancer patients if they have ongoing cancer treatments, or if they have stage four disease. Um, And so, knowing that data, we, I think, are are more cognizant of potential infections when we're talking to patients about treatment options. So, if we are, if we have a choice to administer, uh, you know, a round of chemotherapy or a regimen of chemotherapy that tends to be potentially more toxic, potentially could put the patient more at risk for having an infection. If there's an alternative that, you know, may be less toxic, but you know, equally as effective or, you know, very close to equally as effective, then you know we have to factor in the virus when we make these decisions and discuss with patients options. And, and so we want to make sure that we're very transparent with patients when we discuss those and, and come to a mutual decision as to what what is the best option there. So we also have different ways to administer our treatments. There's potentially, you know, treatments that have um, longer intervals. So some treatments are every week, for instance, some treatments are every three or four weeks. We may choose a, a chemo or treatment regimen that's, that has a less uh, or excuse me, a longer interval of treatment so that patients don't have to come out um, to the public as much for treatments. So those sorts of things are all uh, in the back of our minds when we're making decisions on a day-to-day basis these days. Uh, in terms of the question about the hematologic issues, it's certainly been a big component of, of viral infection is, is the especially clotting issues, blood clots and other uh, hematologic issues borne out by the virus. And it seems to be a problem, like you said, no matter if a patient has a cancer diagnosis or not. But given that, you know, cancer in general is a hypercoagulable state, uh, we are seeing probably more of those sorts of issues affect uh, cancer patients. So, um, you know, it's something that we all think about too, in terms of when patients present with different symptoms or potentially blood clots, you know, we're we're very cognizant of that and the potential impact of COVID on, on their outcomes and their care.
2: A follow-up question, if you will, come kind of on those same lines. You know, part of the morbidity and mortality associated with COVID is the immunologic response, the cytokine release that happens some eight to 10 days into the illness. It's not the only not the only driver of morbidity and mortality for the patient, but certainly it's it's the one that that we all think about the most, just the person with ARDS, we're having a hard time ventilating, et cetera. So how how does that immunologic response in the COVID-19 patient, is it augmented? Is it attenuated? Is it altered in any way in the, in the oncologic patient on or not receiving uh, treatment?
1: Great question. Uh, in terms of patients who are not currently receiving treatment in terms of systemic therapy like you know, some of our chemotherapies or even immune therapy have a higher risk of death or of morbidity than kind of patients who are matched for age and comorbid conditions. So, you know, in terms of patients not on treatment, I think the response is pretty similar to you know, patients without cancer. For patients with on, on treatment, I, I think we all believe that, you know, the outcomes are more serious patients who are on certain types of treatment, <clears throat> but it's probably not every sort of treatment. So I, I think you know our, our cytotoxic chemotherapies, which you know may make patients neutropenic at various intervals or lymphopenic. Um, I think we're seeing poor outcomes in those sorts of patients. Uh, we still don't really know what the effects of, of what some of our immune therapies may be on this virus. Uh, there's a a big revolution in cancer care over the last five years or so. We prescribe drugs now that kind of reawaken the body's own immune systems to fight cancer cells. Uh, And it's kind of yet to be determined how those patients fare if they have a COVID outbreak. I think that's something that people are very interested in that we hope to learn more about. Um, And I'll just put a plug in here real quick that we are having our annual cancer symposium on immune therapy at the end of this year in November. And one of the speakers will be talking about COVID and its impact on immune therapy and cancer patients. So, just to throw that out there. Um, but, you know, what's also interesting on this is that, uh, you know, some of our cancer therapies are actually being tested as potential uh, treatments against the COVID virus. So, uh, there's certain. Uh, cancer treatments that have only been used for cancer patients that are now being tested and at least in preclinical data are showing some effectiveness against the COVID virus itself. Uh, So it'll be really interesting to follow some of that data as uh, it's more clinical trial data comes back uh, to see uh, these sorts of uh, treatments effects on patients in general.
0: Can you tell us just a little bit about how you counsel uh, a patient with cancer undergoing chemotherapy about how to safeguard themselves um, out in public, if if they're supposed to go out in public with with COVID nineteen, are are they being counselled to be I guess uh, more cautious than the general population? And just uh, tell us a little bit about how you would talk to these patients about it.
1: Yeah, so this has uh, kind of become the new norm of of our work on uh, you know kind of an everyday basis with each individual patient, and you know, we're trying to provide that counselling. It's often something the patients want to talk about right away when they come in, you know, what do I need to do to be safe out there? Am I at higher risk than other patients? And it's really an individual. Discussion, um, you know, based on what sort of treatment the patient may be on what sort of exposures could be potential in their lives. Um, So. You know, for instance, I see a lot of patients with breast cancer who are on anti estrogen therapies uh, for their breast cancer for, for long term use many years. And so far, we haven't seen really any increased, you know, chance of infection or poor outcomes with those sorts of treatments. And so if they're on treatments like that, that may not adversely affect their immune system. You know, we basically counsel them that they need to do everything that is required of the rest of us in terms of being socially distant, wearing masks in public, being smart, you know, staying away from sick people. But if we do have to administer, you know, especially cytotoxic chemotherapy, which is going to put the patients immune systems on notice and, uh, you know, have at least a period of time a week, sometimes longer where they're more at risk to infections in general. You know, those patients, I really encourage strongly to to really even take it to the next step to try to stay in their house and limit, you know, uh, engagements as much as possible to have someone else do their grocery shopping and do their normal. Um, things that they do outside of the house to try to help them out, um, but really to try to limit exposures to the outside world, at least during that window. So every patient is different, depending on what the treatment that they're prescribed, and uh, but it's something that, that we take into account and discuss with, with just about every patient these days in clinic.
0: What about, like, the special populations, like the stem cell transplant patients? Um, you know, how far do you go with, you know, isolating that, those individuals?
1: Yeah, so, you know, those, those individuals are probably at the highest risk. They get a really um, rough chemotherapy that may keep them, you know, neutropenic for weeks on end. Um, so, you know, my colleagues who treat those sorts of patients tell me that they, they basically just advise those patients to stay home as much as possible. Sometimes people can go to patients' houses to collect blood work so patients don't have to come in. There's kind of a it's called a safe lab where patients can go and get their blood drawn so that they don't have to actually come into a busy clinic with other patients. So, you know, we're trying to even think about those sorts of things. Um, there are you know, certain medications that are oral medications that we're trying to send directly to patients' houses. So they don't have to go to the pharmacy to pick uh, those things up. So there are extraordinary measures that we can take for certain patients um, that you know, may not be needed for every single patient.
0: That's interesting. Um, I'm glad you brought up those pieces. And then you mentioned telemedicine earlier. You know, We had a huge spike in our telemedicine usage in April and May, it has since kind of fallen for the rest of the population. Did y'all see the the same trend with oncology or has it remained persistently high given the worries with those patients?
1: You know, I think it's it's higher than it used to be before COVID, but, you know, uh, we are seeing a number of patients kind of back in clinic. I think we've all kind of figured out, you know, that we can make our clinics very safe, that we can, you know, format our our reception area, our waiting rooms, to, to be socially distanced. Everyone is, is wearing appropriate PPE in the clinic, and we found that you know we can administer you know treatments in a very safe manner. We can see patients in a very safe manner in our clinic, and you know there's there's still a lot I think that that you know we like about face-to-face visits. You know there's still the importance of clinical exams, being able to talk directly face-to-face with a patient that you miss out on even over video type discussion. Uh, So I think, you know, most of us are more comfortable seeing patients in the clinic than, you know, in the telemedicine setting. But I think there's still a very important role for that. So, you know, probably about 20% of my business are still telemedicine. Uh, And a lot of those are kind of follow-up, you know, one-week follow-ups after treatment just to check in on patients or potentially long-term follow-ups that don't require blood work or imaging tests to be done while the patients in the in the clinic area. So, you know, I think we're using it more than we did before COVID, but not as much as we did in the first month or two when we just weren't sure, you know, even how safe it was for patients to come to clinic.
2: You touched on this briefly, but so how do you segment your 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 patient care? Do you have a portion that you know are COVID free? Do you see them at a certain time? Do you tend to move the patients who you know have been screened or surveillance positive for COVID and or tested positive? Do you do you move them to a different time? How have you been able to deal with those two patient flows in the clinic setting?
1: Yeah, so we've taken some steps to really make the clinic safe and make treatment safe. And one of those steps is that we've implemented over the last uh, few months now is to actually test patients for COVID who are asymptomatic and coming in for routine treatment. So uh, any patient who's gonna be in our infusion area now where patients you know, congregate so that they can be monitored while getting their treatments uh, are undergoing regular COVID testing. And uh, we started that about two, three months ago. And you know, in general, I've found a very you know, small percentage of patients actually test positive who are asymptomatic in that situation. Um, But those patients who do, we generally postpone treatments, you know, we have them stay out of our infusion areas, again, to make it safe for everyone else, and then try to bring them back at intervals for retesting and and treatment. We've only had one patient so far, actually, who tested positive, who we felt like really needed to continue on treatment, um, despite that positive test. And interestingly, that individual was someone who didn't really need cancer directed therapy, but really needed uh, growth factor support because their blood counts were so low and they couldn't receive that outside of the clinic. So, in that instance, we, we, we made a plan to bring that patient in as the last patient of the day when all the other patients had left. We administered the treatment with the staff and full PPE uh, and the patient was kind of in and out very quickly afterwards. Everything was cleaned thoroughly. So, so, we really do have processes in place, you know, to, to do this work um, and, you know, the, the other patients who are just coming back for, you know, every 3 month, 6 month kind of follow up visits. We're not being as aggressive with with testing uh, because they don't congregate in kind of a common area with other folks who are more at risk uh, given their treatments. You know, those patients are still wearing masks in our clinics. All of our staff is, is wearing or in the appropriate PPE and interactions with those patients. So, so you know, we, we try to, you know, determine the risk and the need for testing and the need for certain uh, procedures in place depending on the patient situation and, and the patient's, you know, treatment status.
2: So it sounds like you guys have just continued to adapt as, as COVID-19 uh, has continued to force adaptation. Are there any other processes that you have in place that that you would like to share that, that do address the changing dynamics of, of this um, pandemic.
1: Yeah, you know, I think we're we just um, gotten like a, a lot of I think the other folks in the Baptist network this uh, um, this quick turnaround PCR tests for COVID, uh, which I think is really helpful. We can get kind of accurate information very quickly on a patient's status in terms of COVID. Which really helps with making those treatment decisions right away, as opposed to in the past where we had to wait a long period of time. Um, but I think we, like you said, have really adapted, and you know, continue. We, we will continue to adapt depending on you know the, the future of this. We all hope that the vaccinations are successful, and, and our patients will be lining up um, first, <laughs> probably to get those vaccinations. Um, and so we hope that they're successful. And, and preventing COVID outbreaks, especially in patients like oncology patients who are undergoing uh, immune suppressive treatment. But, you know, I think we've worked well as a system so far. We've had very good, you know, buy-in from administrators, from physicians, from staff in terms of the processes that we've developed and, and will continue to develop, uh, you know, in this in this special time we're all facing.
2: So the rapid PCR test, and I know so many of your patients who are getting, who are getting treatment therapy, uh, many of their symptoms will mimic those of the the symptom panels for for COVID-19. And I know you guys have been working through a process of bringing these patients back in to see, you know, are they truly covid um, positive or, or suspicious, or this is merely uh, a, a symptom profile secondary to their infusion therapy. Is this rapid test going to help augment that, that differential diagnosis?
1: Yeah, that's a great great point. You know, a number of our patients are going through treatment, or you know, have a diagnosis of cancer that can cause some of these symptoms that would potentially flag them for a COVID infection, and, and we recognize that early on and. And really instituted a policy where the, you know, the provider needs to be you know, involved in decision making if a patient, per se, fails a screening questionnaire uh, because of the fact, like you mentioned that some of the symptoms could trigger that. So. You know, I think that the rapid turnaround test is going to be very helpful for our patients because uh, you know a lot of our patients don't have a lot of time in terms of starting therapy or continuing therapy or getting procedures done. You know, and the more delays in some of those steps, you know, could potentially, you know, cause poor outcomes in their cancer care. So, from that perspective, I think it's going to be very helpful uh, to to get that information back very quickly and be able to act on that very quickly. Uh, So, I think, you know, our patient population is is one group that's really going to benefit from that right away. That sounds really promising. Uh, I know we're running up
0: on the hour. Are there any other closing comments or anything else you wanna tell the the medical community?
1: You know, I I just, again, have been very impressed with with the work that uh, we've all done as a group. And, you know, we are participating in in the the national work that's being done. Our, our, you know, we're, our patient information is being included in some of the, the large national registries that are coming out and showing, you know, the effect on COVID Infections and in cancer care in this country. So I'm really proud that we're able to present and, and that data and represent our uh, area and our patients uh, with that information. Um, and you know, I think as the world continues to adapt to this virus, and when we see how the vaccines efficacy works out, you know, I think the cancer patients are are going to be at the fore, I just encourage everyone in the healthcare community to really try to get the word out you know to that population of people out there who are hesitant to to come in to touch the the healthcare system we're taking a number of steps to to make cancer care safe and you know effective in this this outbreak and and any sort of delays you know patients put on in terms of coming in for their routine care screening care you know could eventually adversely affect their health
0: very well said right. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. And and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Right Care Baptist. Remember that if you go to the show notes of the episode, you can find a link to the CME survey where you can earn uh, credit for this episode. Thank you.